So you'll find the reading in your newsletters from the Gospel of John. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some people wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. 
Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, we're in the middle of a, well, a long John series that we just we always seem to do in summer, bit by bit, and um, we'll do it, keep going to the end of end of February, um, leading up to camp. And uh, last week we were up to uh, the previous passage in in John seven, where Jesus is preaching in the outer courts of the temple to a big crowd of pilgrims who have come for the festival of the tabernacles. And they were amazed at what they heard. They'd never heard a preacher like this before. Um, But they also had not really uh, been able to assess his credentials. What rabbi had he been learning from? So they were a little bit unsure. And Jesus responded saying to them that he spoke the words of his Father in heaven and that if they were obedient to God, they'd be able to test his words and know that they were true. Jesus also revealed to this crowd of pilgrims that there was a plot to kill him and they just thought oh who is this random who thinks there's a conspiracy you know and so they think he's a bit of a loony now in the prologue of the gospel of john uh which is the first 18 verses of the first chapter of john which is the key to reading the whole of john if you want to ever know what's going on in the gospel of john just go back to the first 18 verses and it'll just give you clues um it says there that when the son of god comes when, 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 when the Saviour comes, some will accept him and some will reject him. And this morning, that's exactly what we're looking at. We are looking at a drama in front of us um, in three acts. And uh, this drama is the drama of people either accepting or rejecting him. And it's a drama that ends with a surprise. So let me lead you through this drama that we have before us. Act 1 Jesus divides the crowds. Now, in this first act, uh, in our drama, we see a group that uh, John, the gospel writer, calls uh, the people of Jerusalem. These people take centre stage. Look at verse 25. At that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they are not saying a word to him. And the people of Jerusalem are actually a kind of a group that John talks about. It is also talked about somewhere else in the, in the Gospels. Um, it's not just random people. It's like the real locals. Uh, the people of Jerusalem are the group that know everything about Jerusalem, what's going on, who's, you know, who and what's, who's going out with who and all that sort of thing and who's been fired from their job. They know everything. And um, there are people like that around here. We have uh, a lady below us in the office, Mary Creek office, Rosemary Brondolino, who's an old Italian lawyer who works with, you know, the small-time crims. She knows everything about everything in Fitzroy. You walk down the street with her. She took, took me out for lunch last year and she'll say, uh, you know, Sergio owns that hotel and Jimmy owns that cafe and he got sent to jail and, you know, she just knows everything. And so that's what the people of Jerusalem are like. They just know everything about everything in Jerusalem. Imagine a group of locals like that. 
And some of the opinions that people like this have are very confident, aren't they? You know these kind of people. But often they're a little bit also wrong, misinformed. But they still like to sprout their opinions. And this is what's happening here. The Jerusalem people were confidently assessing Jesus, but they were speaking in ignorance. They knew Jesus was the man the the religious leaders were trying to kill. They did know about this plot. So they were a bit confused at why he wasn't being arrested. Like, what? He's out the front. Why didn't they just get him? And with sarcasm, they say, have the authorities actually started to believe he's the Messiah? Of course, they don't really think that. And then verse 27, they say, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. And they seem to have their own theology, the people of Jerusalem, this theology that, you know, the Messiah, when he comes, will plonk out of nowhere. God's just going to make him appear like magic. And like, you know, have you ever seen those uh, spaghetti westerns, the Clint Eastwood ones, the good, the bad and the ugly? You know, the the, the cowboy just walks in out of the desert, out of nowhere, and he appears. And that's how the story ends with him walking back into the desert. That's kind of what they're thinking here. So, but they know where Jesus is from, and he hasn't come out of nowhere. He's from Galilee, so he can't be the Messiah. There's actually a new um, Netflix series Tom French put me onto. I've already started watching. I've been to two episodes, and it's called Messiah. You've seen it? It's it's good. It's good. Well, I like it anyway. And and it's based on this idea of, you know, this messianic character appearing, and uh, the CIA actually suddenly are tracking him because is he, a, you know, a terrorist or something and is he starting some kind of new Al-Qaeda group or something? And um, the show poses this same kind of question. Where is he from? Like, where is this bloke from? He must be from somewhere we know, but they can't track him down. Anyway, check it out. The thing is, there are other people who would have a different view about where the Messiah would come from. For example, the scribes in Matthew chapter 2... Uh, were sure that he would be born in Bethlehem. And this is what they tell Herod. And this is exactly what some other, others say later in our passage in verse 42 in chapter 7. Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So there's a bit of confusion in the crowd. The Jerusalem mob think that, you know, the locals, they think that they know. But Jesus sets them all straight and he basically says that his true origin is heaven. Verse 28, yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Jesus is saying, yes, I was born in Bethlehem, but actually I'm sent from God. And this is a huge claim. And so they tried to arrest him, but failed because it wasn't God's timing that he should be crucified yet. His hour had not yet come, it says in verse 30. And despite what the Jerusalem people said, it says that many in the crowd believed him. In verse 31, they were persuaded by his words. Some rejected, some accepted. As the early Christians read this Gospel of John, uh, this would have been their experience as they tried to tell other people about Jesus. They would have found that some accepted and some rejected. And some rejected even in an angry and hostile way. And this is our experience too, that when we tell people about Jesus, some accept, some reject, and some reject in an angry and hostile way. We tend to focus a lot on those who reject uh, if you are a believer in Jesus. You worry about it and you're very concerned. 
But let me encourage you, what this passage is saying is that there also will be people who accept. Such a small amount of faith in Jesus is all that is required for your salvation. And we see a glimpse of that in John chapter 7. Some hear him and just start believing. Over my lifetime, I've been involved in lots of attempts by my friends and by the churches I've been involved in, ministries, uh, telling people about Jesus and inviting them to respond. And I'm always astounded that people do respond and accept. Like, it's a surprise every time because I just keep focusing on the fact that, oh, most people will reject and say no to Jesus. It, it, it even happens when the presentation of Jesus is a bit weird. Like, I remember showing a bunch of teenagers in the early 2000s, it might have been even the late 90s, um, that Jesus movie that was going around, and it still goes around, it was on a VHS tape, on a really faded old video projector, on a dirty bed sheet, you know, with rips in it, you know, and some teenagers were there watching, surfies, and some accepted. At the end of the movie, it's, it invites you to become a Christian, some accepted. And I remember at the time thinking, I, I just, I don't know how you could respond to that movie. But they responded. In a similar but more dramatic way, um, we think about the history of our country and we think about the missionaries who, who came and ministered amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And sometimes when we think about that, we think about the things that went wrong, the things that the missionaries did were, which were wrong, trying to remove the culture of many of the people. And yet, there were many good Aborig uh, missionaries to the Aboriginal people as well. And also... Now, over 60% of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people say that they are Christians. So there's something about the message that has caused them to respond and accept. Some people reject and some people accept. And let's focus on the fact that some people accept and let that encourage us. We should not get too discouraged. This year we will be running Alpha after Easter. And we're doing this because we believe and know that there's a promise in the Bible that when the gospel is put out to the world, some people will accept and some people reject. So you should, should get it out there because some people are going to accept. Okay, let's move to Act 2 of our drama, verses 32 to 36. The chief priests and the Pharisees unsuccessfully confront Jesus. So we had the Jerusalem, Jerusalem people, the mob, the Jerusalem locals, as the focus. Now our attention moves to the religious authorities the uh, chief priests and the Pharisees. And these religious leaders were trying to arrest Jesus and have him killed. And they, and they heard the crowds whispering, oh, maybe he's the Messiah. No, he can't be the Messiah. Maybe he is. So they decided to kind of side with those who were rejecting and give them, you know, the support. And uh, they tried to send the, the temple guards in verse 32 to arrest him. But this was not the time for Jesus to go to the cross, as we've already read. And so their attempt at arrest failed. God is in control. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus just looks at his attackers and to the wider crowd and says calmly that soon he really would be gone. You're going to try and take me away and you're not going to be able to take me away. But actually soon I am going to be really gone from you. And when that day comes um, that he would go and be with his father and away from the world. Look at verse 33. Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time and then I'm going to, I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. 
The Jewish authorities speculated about what he is talking about. What is he? To- where is he going? That we that we we uh, we um, can't follow him. Is, is he leaving Israel? Is Israel? Is he going to the Gentiles? Maybe that's what he's going to do. And they're never going to follow him there. No, actually, Jesus is talking about heaven, and he's talking about a place where they can't go. Not that they won't go there; they just can't. Up until now, Jesus has been at work in the world, searching out people. And soon he's saying, you're going to start searching out me. They will search for him and try and find what they have missed. And this is a warning for us. It's a warning to them to not delay in responding to Jesus. The the, the message is put out there, some reject, some accept, and you might be just holding off on responding and delaying. Don't, Don't delay if you're wondering... I encourage you to accept. I'm here now, says Jesus. Accept my offer of salvation now. If you wait too long, you might, too long, you might miss the opportunity. You don't want to become that poor person who finds themselves lost in the spiritual wilderness after rejecting God and floundering around, still searching but not finding. There's a theme in the Bible of this idea of the human being's hardened heart that can grow over time. It's like uh, we can harden our hearts towards God and over time he hands us over to our hardened hearts if we're not careful. And when that happens, it, it can almost become impossible for us to even want to desire God at all. Uh, it, it leads to a lack of desire for repentance for our sin. And it causes a long-term resistance of God throughout your whole life. And that becomes an obstacle in your way. So I guess what I'm saying to you, yeah, is if you're considering following Jesus, now is the time to respond. The issue is not that God is impatient. This is not what we're saying here. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's going out of his way to reach out. He's more patient than you can imagine. The real issue is us and our hearts and the idols that distract us. Jesus said to them, you will look for me, but you will not find me. Perhaps he's talking to Australians when he says this. Perhaps he's talking to our endless pursuit of transcendence in other ways. You're looking for me here, you're looking for me there. That's, you're not going to find me there. Finding spiritual fulfillment in all kinds of other ways. You look for me, but you will not find me there. And there's only one place you can truly find the life and the nourishment you are seeking. We're going to look at that now in Act 3 of the drama, where in verse 37 to 52, Jesus presents himself as the true water that gives life. So Act 3 of our our Jesus drama occurs the next day on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you read through the Gospel of John, and if you you just go slowly, something that you'll see emerge is this amazing thing that Jesus pops up at these Jewish festivals and then he presents himself as the fulfilment of the festival. <laughs> Pretty cool. You know, imagine going up to a party. I am the party, you know. Um, and he, so, he, he, you know, he, he, he pops up at the feast of the Passover and he says, actually, I am the sacrificial lamb who, who brings salvation. He, he is the fulfilment of the feast of dedication, which... Uh, modern Jewish people call the, the Hanukkah, you might have heard of that, or the Feast of Lights, because he is the truer and better light of the world that brings light um, and defeats darkness. He is the Messiah. 
And now we're going to see that he is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what is the Feast of Ta Tabernacles? I've just been uh, reading through my own Bible reading, um, Leviticus. And I was a bit sort of, uh, when I got to Leviticus, I was like, oh, okay. But then I just have been refreshed at how amazing it is. And it's like cool stuff like uh, chameleons are mentioned and um, bats and like skin diseases and mold and stuff. So it's like quite gory and there's lots of good stuff in there. Lots of discussion about all kinds of interesting things. Now in Leviticus... God told Moses to command the people, and this is, I'm quoting from Leviticus, on the first day you shall take the product of hadar trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, Leviticus 23 verse 40, and you shall live in booths seven days. All citizens in Israel shall live in booths in order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So this is an agricultural festival it commemorates the 40-year period that the Israelites were in the desert, living in temporary shelters. It's like a harvest festival. It's, it's sometimes referred to as the festival of the ingathering, praying for God to bless the Israelites with the provisions that they need to survive. And every day in this festival, there's a water ceremony with a procession of priests going down to the south border of the city to the Gihon Spring, and a priest filled a golden jug and carried the jug. Um, and, and the choir sings from the Psalms when this is going on. They're singing from, oh, sorry, first from, they're singing from Isaiah 12, verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then the water was then carried back up the hill to the water gate, followed by crowds carrying tree branches, waving the tree branches. Then they sing from the Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. And when the procession arrived at the temple... The, the priest would climb the altar steps and pour the water onto the altar while the crowd circled him and continued singing. And on the seventh day of the festival, the procession took place seven times. So what's all this about? This, this, this has got multiple levels of meaning here. At a simple level, this is all about crying out to God to provide water. There, there were a desert people and uh, you needed water. They were an agricultural society. Um, and so it was hot. It was, they were desperately in need of rain. And so, just as they prayed for rain in the desert when they were wandering through the desert, now they pray for rain in the Feast of Tabernacles. And we all know how desperate you can be for rain when you don't have it in Australia. Uh, this ceremony also points to the time when in the desert, Moses and Aaron bring water, or God uses them to bring water from a rock. They strike the rock and the water pours out. And here uh, they're praying now for water flowing out from the sacrificial altar of the temple, and they're enacting that in a ceremony. And that now, at another level, this is talking about spiritual things as well as water. So the prophets Zechariah and Ezekiel took this imagery to a higher level and they have visions of rivers flowing from the temple in a miraculous way of God's blessing. It's a spectacular vision of water, life-giving water coming from God. And they're not just talking about water, but they're talking about the flowing waters of God's spirit coming out of the temple. Now, on this final day of the celebration, in the Festival of Tabernacles, Jesus steps into public view in his true fashion, just as the seven water processions are climbing up the steps and the priest is carrying the thing 
you know, to pour the water. And he stands up and says, Let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That's pretty bold. Suddenly, all the Jewish worshippers who were looking at the priest turn and look at Jesus. What is this guy saying? He's saying he's the true source of the water of life. He's saying, if anyone is thirsty, come to me. And you, if you believe in me, then you can drink the water that I offer. He's, he's literally saying streams of living water will flow from your belly. He means that if you believe in him, you'll have no more need for any spiritual blessings from elsewhere because he will provide everything that you need. He provides it with his living water, the fountain of which never grows dry. This is the living water which is necessary for the spiritual life of the soul. This is what we are searching for when we're looking for spiritual nourishment. Jesus is promising the believers the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit. He's promising a deposit of heaven placed in your heart. He's promising intimacy with God in your worship and in your prayer life. He's promising the gifts of the Spirit which enable you to serve him in the church. He's promising the fruit of the Spirit which enables you to grow in character, in godly character. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. He's, he's promising all that. He's promising eternal life. He says exactly, exactly the same thing to the Samaritan woman at the well. She comes for water, but he offers her a permanent kind of water that never runs dry, that would truly nourish her. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Ordinary H2O, it quenches your thirst for a short time and you need it again. But Jesus is saying that by faith, when we draw on his spirit, on the Holy Spirit, that he may become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You look at verse 38 and 39, John clarifies that's exactly what he's talking about. He says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up, and, up, up to that time the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And John is pointing forward to the day of Pentecost. He's, saying, he's not saying that as soon as you become a Christian, that you're so fully satisfied with Christ that from that time forward you never actually get physically hungry or thirsty. He's not saying that. Uh, on the contrary, your enjoyment of Christ creates in you a new satisfaction and a new desire for him that overrides all those other needs. The Holy Spirit is like a living and continually flowing fountain inside of you. Paul declares that this is his life in us, in Romans 8, verse 10. And, and it's there, even though in, in this life, before we step into eternity, we still wrestle with sin and experience suffering. Every believer can enjoy the gifts and the graces of the Holy Spirit. If we just put our trust in Jesus... If you want to progress in your faith, if you want to grow in your faith, it involves continually drawing on that spirit that he is offering here. 
All the predictions of living waters, therefore, have their fulfilment in Jesus. Because it's only he who has opened and displayed the hidden treasures of God. Now what Jesus is saying here is actually even more shocking because he's actually saying, I'm the replacement of the temple. Uh, if you want access to the spiritual water that flows in heaven, you need no, no, look no further. Don't, don't look at the building, look at me. Jesus is the fulfilment of the Feast of Tabernacles because he is the truer and better temple and only he can provide the streams of living water. He's a truer and better Moses who struck a rock and brought forth water, but Jesus himself will be struck down on the cross and will rise to new life and ascend into heaven, and after that the Holy Spirit will pour out. And if we cast our minds forward to Good Friday when Jesus is hanging on the cross, what do we see but a spear go into him and blood and then water pour out? He is the truer and better Passover lamb and also the truer and better water because he provides the Holy Spirit through his death and resurrection and ascension. In our church's vision statement, we say that we want to be a church that nourishes spiritual seekers. If we are people who are seeking to be nourished in any other way than Jesus, we will not find it. If we're seeking inner peace in any other way, we will not find it. If we want to find a taste of heaven in any other way, we might get a kind of a false taste, but you can have a true taste if you, through Jesus. Yoga, it will not truly make us intimate with God. Mindfulness will not bring forgiveness of our sins. Aromatherapy will not create intimacy with God. Now, all these things might have some kind of a place, in the well-being of your life, but actually they, they do not replace, they're not even a scratch on what Jesus is offering. Do you believe Jesus is just a prophet or do you believe he's the Messiah? Because if you believe he's the Messiah, then you can be spiritually nourished with the Holy Spirit. You can re receive the Holy Spirit today even. This, this question of, is he just a prophet who says good things or is he the Messiah, is what they're saying in this passage. Look at the, verse 40 and 41. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet, because, you know, they're hearing the, seeing the Moses imagery. Others said, no, he's the Messiah. All these allusions to Moses lead the crowd to think that maybe he's even better than Moses or maybe he's the same as Moses. The crowd is still divided. Then there's people who think the Messiah should come from nowhere. That, that debate starts coming up again in the Bethlehem debate. And, and the crowd is divided again into potential believers and those who wish to harm Jesus. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees, again, they try and they get frustrated and angry. And the temple police, they're just like giving up. They're like, I'm not going to, we're not going to arrest this guy. Look how amazing he is. Verse 45, they say to him, they say to the the. the the, the, the guards, why didn't you bring him in? The Pharisees and chief priests say. And they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards replied, you mean he has deceived you also? Jesus is creating waves here. He has made an impact. His message has cut to their heart. 
And suddenly we see Nicodemus emerge. Now, if you don't know who he is, he's come back from the Gospel of John. He was back a few chapters earlier. And he's one of the religious leaders who must have been part of this group. And he's trying to actually discourage them from arresting him because he seems to believe when he earlier went and saw Jesus late at night, one-on-one meeting, Jesus teaches him how to receive new life and be born again. And now it seems like perhaps this is what's happened to him and he's kind of there trying to discourage them. And what happens when, they try and dis- when he tries to discourage them? They, they call him names. He, so he says to them, verse 51, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? And he's right, no, it doesn't. And then they mock him. Are you from Galilee too? Now look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee, which obviously shows they haven't read the Bible because Jonah came from Galilee and Nahum came from Galilee. Their plot had failed, so they all went home. So who do you think Jesus is? Is he a false messiah, a skilled speaker with evil motivation trying to lead people astray? Was he a prophet with wise words? Was he a messiah that can offer new life? You can go on rejecting him or you could accept him this morning and I invite you to do that now. So I'm going to pray and invite you to accept Jesus. I'll pray a line and you can pray this after me. Lord Jesus, I accept you as my saviour. Thank you that you have sought me out I now respond and give my life to you. I turn away from my old life of sin and I ask to receive the Holy Spirit. I want living waters to flow out of me. Amen.